welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to series 8 and episode 12. Jesus confronts religious hypocrisy and lack of true faith. We're in Luke chapter 11, where we've been for the last couple of episodes. So if you've been following through uh, those episodes, you'll get a feel of the story, which I'll just recapitulate in a moment. We're going to look at Luke chapter 11, verses 37 to 54. That's the text we'll study in this episode. But let's quickly just remind ourselves where we are in the story in series seven. Um, As I've stated a number of times uh, in recent episodes, uh, we see the turning point in Jesus' ministry moving from Galilee towards the south of the country, Jerusalem and the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria. Uh, We have the transfiguration on the mountain uh, near Caesarea Philippi in which Jesus states clearly to Peter, James and John that uh, in conversation with uh, 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 resurrected Moses and Elijah, that he's going to head for Jerusalem and uh, bring his ministry to a climax through his death and resurrection. We're on the journey south and uh, in series eight, we started in John's gospel. John told us that as Jesus headed south, he made two quick visits to Jerusalem, uh, which were not designed to be the final big event. Um, He came in very quickly Uh, and quietly uh, and left fairly quickly as well. Uh, So we see those described uh, in John's Gospel, chapters 7, 8, 9 and 10. And we've studied that in the earlier part of the series. Now we've turned to Luke's Gospel and we're following Luke's narrative. Luke devotes uh, a large proportion of his uh, uh, material to this section. Luke is particularly interested in this section of Jesus's ministry. Uh, not so much in Galilee, but on the road, traveling around the country with all sorts of unknown factors uh, involved in that. We don't always know exactly where he is because he's obviously moving around from place to place. He sent out 72 of his disciples, including the apostles in pairs. They've been traveling all over the country. That's 36 uh, teams of evangelists and preachers who've gone to villages and towns and small communities all over the place, trying to spread the message as thoroughly in the central and southern parts of the country as they'd already done in the north in Galilee through earlier missionary trips of the Twelve and Jesus traveling around in his three tours of Galilee. So this is the momentum. All sorts of things happen along the way. And Luke includes quite a number of parables as Jesus uh, teaches principles of the kingdom. Many of those parables are unique to Luke, so that's a very rich resource for our teaching. Um, And he also describes uh, a number of incidents uniquely and uh, brings to our attention the general framework of what's actually happening. So Jesus is attracting significant crowds and following as he's going south. He's also attracting significant opposition. As I've stated on a number of times previously, The opposition to Jesus was strongest in the south, in Jerusalem, where the Sanhedrin, the ruling uh, Jewish council uh, uh, who who looked after their religious uh, life, they met and uh, they were based in the temple and in that surrounding area with the priests and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They had already declared their hand. They were uh, opposed to Jesus. They considered him to be deluded, a false messiah, and empowered by demonic forces. A terrible thing to say about Jesus. That message 
was being spread around the crowds. That's what the religious leaders thought, and this was provoking conflict. This conflict is getting more severe. And in the last incident, in the last episode, we saw a spark took place, uh, a moment in which there was a confrontation between two different views of Jesus, when Jesus healed a man who was mute, driving out an evil spirit, and this provoked people in the crowd to accuse him of using uh, demonic power to drive out demonic spirits. And then Jesus responded very robustly in the teaching that was given in the last episode. And if you haven't heard or seen that episode, I'd encourage you to do so because it's closely linked to this one. So this simmering conflict is the background of what's going to happen in the episode today. And that simmering conflict reaches um, a kind of red hot uh, confrontational moment by the end of this episode. It's absolutely electrifying to see what happens because Jesus doesn't um, disguise his thoughts. He's very clear and his opponents declare their hand. They come out against him very clearly by the end of this episode. So this is not comfortable reading. This is not uh, a simple situation. This is not Jesus enjoying the height of his popularity. You'll remember in earlier episodes, if you've been with us on this journey, that the heights of Jesus' popularity took place earlier in Galilee and towards the end of his time in Galilee, his popularity was overwhelming. Uh, immense crowds believed he was the Messiah and actually thought he'd probably continue uh, his work by becoming politically active and overturning Herod Antipas, their local ruler, overturning the Romans uh, in Jerusalem and in the province of Judea and basically reforming the whole country, setting them free from all sorts of oppression. So that popular period has uh, come to an end. Now what we see in the narrative is that whilst lots of people are hugely drawn to him and he is attracting many uh, people in the crowds. There's a very strong move now amongst other people to resist him. There's direct conflict happening and that conflict is headed up, uh, generally speaking, by members of the sect called the Pharisees and other teachers of the law um, who um, uh, are probably traveling around watching what Jesus is doing and challenging him. So it's a pretty tense situation that we see in this episode. And we're going to start by just setting the scene, reading verses 37 and 38 of Luke chapter 11. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Now, the Pharisee's invitation could have been seen as a, as a real blessing to Jesus. Pharisees sometimes invited him uh, into their homes. We have another example described in Luke 7, verses 36 onwards, where something very dramatic happened in a Pharisee's home when a woman came in who'd been involved in prostitution and um, anointed Jesus' feet and so on. So here's another example of a uh, Pharisee inviting uh, Jesus in for a meal. Jesus reclined at the table. If you remember earlier discussions of the uh, social habits of Jews uh, in that time, you'll know that uh, when eating a formal meal, um, people 
uh, rested on their side. They lay down and rested on their side. They didn't sit uh, at a table with chairs as uh, many modern people do. So Jesus was reclining and the Pharisee noticed that Jesus didn't go through an elaborate uh, uh, washing of his hands uh, uh, in preparation for the hospitality. Now this reminds us that there's, there's a background issue behind this. In an earlier episode, um, I was looking at a passage uh, in Mark chapter 7, um, in which uh, there's a direct confrontation between Jesus and uh, some Pharisees and teachers of the law uh, around various things. But this issue of ceremonial washing was very much at the centre of it. So I'm just going to quickly read you, uh, to give you the context, um, what was said in Mark 7, verses 3 and 4. This is a description of what the Pharisees and other Jews did in terms of ritual washing. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Now, this is not washing your hands for hygienic reasons with just a very small amount of water and some soap, as modern people uh, might do. No, this is a ceremonial process involving lots and lots of water. Huge uh, amount of water was kept in, in jars, in homes. You see an example of this in John chapter 2 at the wedding uh, scene uh, in Cana of Galilee, uh, when Jesus filled those jars miraculously um, uh, turning the water there into wine. Um, so there's lots of water was used for elaborate ceremonial washing. And this was because the washing had not just a hygienic significance, but a spiritual, religious significance, trying to wash off the spiritual dirt of contamination from outside society, particularly Gentiles, um, non-Jews, particularly unclean uh, Jewish people, ritually unclean people you might bump into in the marketplace. So there was a very a great emphasis on this, but Jesus did not follow these traditions. And this Pharisee here was surprised, perhaps even offended. And this was the trigger for Jesus's comments, uh, which follow in verses 39 to 52. This, this observation and this awareness, mutual awareness that there's a difference here, triggered Jesus to say some pretty firm things. Verse 39, then the Lord said to him, now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs. But you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. 
Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you're like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also, Jesus replied. And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I'll send you prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. I think you can now see what I was saying earlier on about how serious this conflict has become. Jesus didn't hesitate to uh, explain exactly what he thought about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who are representing the wider Jewish religious authority of the Sanhedrin and also of the priests who operate in the temple in Jerusalem. They've spoken against him. They have accused him of being a false messiah as we saw uh, in a number of places, notably Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 to 24. They've been very clear that they don't believe in him. And it appears as the Pharisee is inviting Jesus to this meal, he's got a number of friends with him. The teachers of the law are there. No doubt other Pharisees are there. These are people who are travelling around observing Jesus and they are uh, drawing him into a private setting away from the crowds uh, in order to probably try and uh, uh, trick him into uh, making unwise statements in, in, or, or in terms of trying to challenge him or observe him, see if he's inconsistent in any way, um, and particularly if he breaks their laws. And what Jesus did at the beginning of this incident was that he broke one of their religious laws and traditions. But as I explained when we first looked at this issue in Mark chapter 7, but I'll say it again for clarity, the, there was a fundamental distinction in Israel between the laws of Moses given in the Bible, in the Old Testament, which were divinely inspired for the Jewish people, and the religious laws that had been added in over the centuries by a number of different 
groups of religious leaders, including the Pharisees and the teachers of the law mentioned here. There were hundreds and hundreds of extra regulations which were not found in the Old Testament. And Jesus, all the way through his ministry, consistently refuses to obey those traditions. He considers them to be oppressive and dangerous and misleading and unworkable for ordinary Jewish people seeking to find a living faith. And that's what he explains here. So that's the background. And that's why we very quickly move into a conflict situation. So let's have a look at what Jesus is actually criticizing them for. Verses 39 to 42, he criticizes them for just having an external or outward faith that lacks any real internal uh, spiritual dynamic. It's, it's not what's going on in the heart, it's what people are doing on the outside just for show. So he makes this startling statement in verse 41, but now as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Well, that's going right to the heart. We know from evidence in the New Testament and elsewhere that many of these religious leaders were quite wealthy. And we know from Jesus' statements elsewhere that they tended to really enjoy materialism and money and wealth. And so Jesus cuts to the heart of that and he says, what would show your true attitude is if you give away substantial amounts of money and material resources to the poor, something that they were very reluctant to do for the most part. He criticizes them in verse 43 for having pride in their social status. They love those important seats in the synagogue. They love the fact that at the front there are some seats reserved for the most important people in the community. That is them. As soon as they go into the synagogue, people will know they're not going to sit amongst the ordinary people. They're going to sit in the important seats at the front. And they love it when they go uh, down the streets and people will go out of their way to greet them. Hello, Rabbi. Hello, teacher. Welcome to our community. Come and teach us. We want to come and learn from you. We honour you. They loved it. They loved that. But verse 44, they're misleading ordinary people in matters of faith. They're like unmarked graves. People walk over graves. Now, in many cultures of the world uh, today and, and in those days, uh, it was a tradition that you don't walk on a grave, a sign of respect to the family and to the dead person. And in fact, in, in the, those days, then graves were generally uh, marked with a, with a whitewash, very clearly, so that you wouldn't tread on them, you'd see them. But he, Jesus said here, you're like graves that have got no marking on, so people are walking all over. In other words, they're being misled and are becoming defiled by walking on the grave. It's a metaphor, it's an image to explain that they're misleading people. And in verse 46, he says they're creating unjustified burdens, unsustainable legalism, lots and lots of rules that simply cannot be sustained. You load people down with burdens they can hardly carry. Whilst you're not going to do anything to help them. These are 
terrible statements, serious statements, worrying statements, but they're true statements. This is what was really going on. This is the background to so much of the Gospels and particularly in the latter part of the story and we're entering into that uh, latter phase towards the end. This conflict is so great. And yet Jesus's view is that God's choice of the Jews from Abraham and Sarah onwards was for a particular purpose, which was to be a place in the world and an ethnic context in the world in which the Messiah can come and be given to the world from the Jews. His view is that the history of God's dealing with Israel through the uh, early days of Moses and Joshua, through the period of Judges and the kingship and the return to the land after the exile and through the work of the prophets, all this process was to prepare the way for this very moment, the coming of Jesus, this very moment. And if the Jews had responded well to that process, then they could, as a nation, by and large, have received the Messiah and given tremendous energy and impetus and strength to the worldwide mission of the church as a nation. But Jesus's statements in the next few verse, verses indicate that something tragic and terrible had happened over the years, which was now reaching an awful climax that was about to burst into action. The tragedy is that over the years, the Jews had generally rejected the prophets who were leading them in the right direction. They'd even killed many of them. And they were, they were bringing judgment on themselves. And Jesus predicted they would do exactly the same for him. So that's why he says... So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. Verse 48. They killed the prophets and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they'll kill, kill and others they will persecute. And the next verse is very sinister and sad. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. And I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Now, Abel, in the Bible narrative, was the first person to be murdered. And Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, uh, was the last recorded person, prophetic person to be murdered according to Old Testament history. The reference to Abel is in Genesis chapter 4. The reference to Zechariah is in the history book 2 Chronicles 24 verse 21. So the first and the last martyrs who were 
prophets of God speaking uh, of God following God, Abel and Zechariah, these were murdered and all that has happened all that happened in between in terms of the opposition to the voice of God coming through the prophets was building um, judgment into uh, divine judgment uh, into the nation of Israel. And Jesus said, this generation will be held responsible for it all. You see, that generation had all the resources available that they needed. They had the whole of the Old Testament fully assembled. It had been assembled sometime before the time of Christ, probably coming into its final form about 150 years before Jesus came. They had all the prophecies, all the prophecies about the Messiah, all the prophecies about the son of David, which we've referred to uh, in other episodes. And he concludes, uh, speaking of the experts of the law, with these words, you've taken away the key of knowledge and have, you've not entered and you've hindered those who were entering. Isn't that amazing? You want to get in a house? You need a key. If someone knows you want to get into that house and you have a right to go in that house and he's got the key and he takes it away, hides it, throws it in the river, He's locking you out of an amazing blessing. He's locking you out of what you're being invited into. The key of knowledge. That key of knowledge is all the spiritual history of Israel as recorded in the scriptures. If the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, but particularly the teachers of the law in these verses here in the second half of this passage, oh, that's their focus. If the teachers of the law had looked very carefully and humbly at the Old Testament prophets, they would have seen clearly the prophecies of the Messiah in books such as Isaiah. And if they had used that knowledge and said to the crowds who were asking them, what should we make of this man? If they'd said, well, look, actually, he's fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament. You should believe in him. Then they would have been giving the key of knowledge to these people. But no, they closed the door and tried to stop them entering in. In fact, that's what they were doing at that very time, because in the crowds, generally speaking, in this part of Jesus' ministry, there were Pharisees, there were teachers of the law and other religious leaders who were speaking within the crowds and speaking to the crowds behind the scenes, undermining what Jesus was saying and doing. Now, the shocking outcome of this is what happened when they left the meal and they went outside and engaged with crowds because there were always crowds around and the crowds were waiting for Jesus to re-emerge from the Pharisees' house. Verse 53, when Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Well, that's pretty clear what's happening there. So the crowds will be witnessing this incredibly confusing scene 
the people they respect, their religious leaders, are actively undermining this amazing prophet and teacher and healer whom they love and they're fascinated by and they're amazed at the things he's done and they are confused. The key of knowledge is being taken away from them. They are being hindered from entering into the kingdom of God and that's exactly what happened in this open conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders being played out in front of vast crowds as they travelled along the road. This is not a comfortable time in the ministry of Jesus. This is not a comfortable time for the uh, 12 disciples who were involved in all this and seeing it going on. So what are our final reflections as we come to the end of this fascinating but hugely challenging episode? Well, we're reminded again that legalism is powerful and deadly. Legalism being the view that religion is essentially about obeying a code of rules imposed by somebody else that will hopefully gain you acceptance from God if you do well enough. Christianity and the message of Jesus is fundamentally different from this. Jesus is opposed to all this legalism. He says it's deadly and ineffective and offers a different path of salvation, which is through repentance, faith and belief in Jesus, death on the cross, his resurrection and his substitutionary atoning sacrifice for us to pay the price for our sins. He offers the power of the Holy Spirit to be the transformer within rather than hundreds of laws which we have to obey to try and shape us and make us different. We see here the strength uh, and the intensity of the conflict between Jesus and the religious establishment. And we see Israel on the point of judgment. The storm clouds are gathering over the nations. And we see Jesus's painfully powerful prophecy in Luke eleven forty nine. I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. And so it has been in the early church and in the history of the church that those who declare the gospel and the message bring a prophetic understanding of it, the original apostles and all who followed them are at risk of persecution and even losing their lives. It happened to John the Baptist it happened to the first martyr, Stephen, in Acts 7. It ultimately, almost certainly happened to Paul and Peter, the two great apostles who church tradition tells us died a martyr's death shortly after the end of their writings in the New Testament. And so the story has continued. Where the church is growing, one of its main challenges and oppositions will be various forms of religious legalism. And you can interpret this narrative and this story into your culture. You'll probably quickly see a version of this conflict going on in your culture and in your religious traditions and in your social framework. And they're very, very different outworkings of this uh, conflict that can go on. And we intuitively know what it is that is the main issue in our own culture. Now, we need to follow Christ wholeheartedly and we need to avoid legalism very keenly and we need to trust Christ.
in times when the church will be opposed outright and firmly because of its faith in Jesus the Messiah, the one who died and rose again and saved us from our sins through his atoning death on the cross and sent his Holy Spirit. But these truths we must hold on to firmly, following in the footsteps of Jesus and knowing that the kingdom we inherit will be an eternal one. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.